Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. We're your favorite podcast all about the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series, the Heroes of Olympus series, the uh, Kane Chronicles, the Trials of Apollo, the everything else that there is, which Mag- I think there's only the one Magnus more. The Magnus Archives. The Magnus Archives. We talk about Serial. We talk about... We talk about the Macleod brothers. We'll be in Trolls too. We've got it all for you exclusively. Actually, I think that was on the bonus episode. I think that's right. I think you're right. Uh, today, we're starting the Battle of Labyrinth. Yeah. We've made it to book number four. Yeah. How you feeling, Jane? Uh, generally or about the book? Uh, let's, let's go generally first. Uh, generally, I feel a lot better than I did a few hours ago because uh, I felt very, very ill and then nature compelled me to remove some things from my body, and now I feel better. That's sick, literally. Sorry <laughs> for the Please don't apologize, it was perfect. Thank you. Uh, how are you feeling on the book so far? I mean, I, I'm, my first impression of the book is, it's alright. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I feel pretty much the same. It's alright. <laughs> alright, let's get right into it, folks. Jane, tell us about these chapters. And I have just realized I've set up my microphone in front of my screen. You are a fool. Yep. D- listen, I am unwise. It's part of our brand. I completely understand. Okay, here we go. Chapter summaries. Chapter one. I battle the cheerleading squad. We open on Percy's mum dropping him off for his orientation at Good High School, spelt with an E, where her boyfriend, <laughs> Paul Blofus, works as a teacher. As he approaches the entrance to the school, he notices a familiar face, Rachel Elizabeth Dare, the mortal girl who he met at the Hoover Dam in Titan's Curse, who has the ability to see through the mist. In an attempt to avoid her, Percy tries to sneak in the side entrance, where he's met by two cheerleaders, Kelly and Tammy. As Percy tries to sidle past them and get into the school, he knocks against Kelly's leg, which makes a metallic clang noise. Before he has any time to process this, the orientation begins. And it goes well, right up until Percy realises that Rachel is sitting right next to him. They talk briefly about the incident at the dam, but before Percy can explain himself properly, the cheerleaders go up on stage at the orientation. And it's clear that the metallic clang that Percy heard was only the tip of the iceberg. Rachel, with her ability to see through the mist, sees them for what they really are, and flees, taking Percy with her into the band's storage room. Percy gives Rachel the basics on what's going on, and she's relieved to find that the bizarre things she's been seeing are actually real. Just then, Kelly and Tammy arrive. While Rachel freaks out about their horrible appearance, Percy can't see through the mist as well, and as a result, the two are able to use their womanly wiles to disorient him. The two are Empousai, the creatures on which vampires are based, and look similar through the mist, besides the fact that one leg belongs to a donkey and the other is made out of bronze on each of them. Kelly tells Percy that soon Camp Half-Blood will fall, and his friends will be enslaved by the Lord of Time. In the resulting fight, Percy manages to kill Tammy and attempts to finish off Kelly, but she flees into the corridor, and a bunch of students, plus Paul Blofus, watch as Percy strikes her. Kelly bursts into flames and disappears, and Percy runs for it. Outside the school, he meets Annabeth, who had been planning to meet him once the orientation was over. Percy tells her about the monster attack, and then Rachel arrives, 
and tells Percy to go and that she'll cover for him. Annabeth seems a little jealous that Percy was hanging out with her and seems to know... Pfft. Annabeth is jelly that... Uh, shit. Annabeth is jealous that Percy was hanging out with and seems to know Rachel and she and Percy hop in a cab to get to Camp Half-Blood. Chapter 2. I get a prank call from the underworld. Percy and Annabeth catch up on the taxi ride to camp. Annabeth says that Mount Tam is still crawling with monsters, but that Luke isn't there, and that she hasn't seen any sign of Nico since he disappeared. When they arrive, Annabeth runs off to find Clarice, telling Percy she'll meet him at The Hearing. Percy wanders down the sword area to blow off some steam, and meets Quintus, an adult demigod who's filling in as head of camp while Mr. D is away, and his pet hellhound, Mrs. O'Leary. Percy also sees a bunch of mysterious crates covered in warnings, which Quintus cryptically tells him is for a training exercise. Chiron then comes and collects Percy, grimly informing him that the hearing is about to begin. Grover's hearing, where his fate will be decided by the Council of Cloven Elders. When they arrive, Chiron goes to sit with the Council, while Percy sits with Clarice, Annabeth and Juniper, Grover's new dryad girlfriend who is distraught. The Council are accusing Grover of making up his visions of Pan, as he's failed to produce any results in finding him since then. The Council give Grover one more week to make something happen, or he'll get his license taken off him. After briefly catching up with the miserable satyr after the trial, Percy has to run to his cabin, as inspection is imminent, and his is still a tip from when he last stayed there. However, when he arrives, he finds that it's already been cleaned because Tyson has arrived. Tyson also reveals that he's repaired Percy's shield, which Percy is overjoyed about. The two hang out for the rest of the day, and Tyson mentions that, for some reason, Grover scares him. They go to the sword arena again, and Percy notices a strange mark on Quintus's neck, which he refuses to elaborate on. After that, it's time for dinner, where Percy tells Tyson that Nico is a son of Hades. Later that night, Percy can't sleep, and as he's tossing and turning, he notices a rainbow in the spray from the cabin's fountain. It turns out to be a collect call iris message, and it shows Percy the inside of Hades, where he sees Nico, now dirty and pale, talking to an unseen evil spirit. The spirit tells Nico that the way to return his sister to life is to trade a soul for a soul, and as the call ends, Percy suspects that Nico will end up coming for him since it was Percy who let Bianca die to begin with. Chapter 3. We play tag with scorpions. At breakfast, some kids are worried about a dragon that was seen probing the edge of the camp's defences, as it might be a precursor to an attack from Luke. In the midst of all this, Percy, Annabeth and Grover talk about Grover's last chance to find Pan, going into the labyrinth. Annabeth explains that the labyrinth has expanded since its original Cretan iteration, and you can now get basically anywhere by travelling through it as long as you don't get lost or ripped apart by monsters. Clarice's secret mission from the last book was to scout the labyrinth and retrieve Chris Rodriguez, a defector to Luke's side who was driven insane in the labyrinth. What she learned was that Luke is exploring the labyrinth, searching for a way to invade the camp. Annabeth also theorises that Pan may be somewhere in the labyrinth, which would explain why he's been almost impossible to find until now, and so Grover should go looking there, although Grover isn't enthusiastic about going underground for long stretches. Later that day, everyone gets suited up as if they're about to play capture the flag, but Quintus announces that instead they'll be pairing off to hunt monsters. These turn out to be the contents of the mysterious crates, a half dozen giant scorpions, one of which has a pair of golden laurels. First team to kill the right scorpion and claim the laurels wins. Percy and Annabeth are paired off, and everyone moves into the woods to begin the hunt. Percy and Annabeth reminisce about searching for Nico in the woods, and Percy tells her about the weird IM he got, and the evil-sounding spirit who was talking to Nico. The two are interrupted by a rustling, which they chase through the undergrowth until they arrive at Zeus's Fist, a large rock formation in the woods. 
After a brief encounter with Juniper, the two are surrounded by three of the scorpions. Knowing that they can't take on three at once, they crawl into a crack in the rocks and fall into a space far too large to be under the woods. It's pitch dark and the walls are smooth, worked stone. After stumbling around in the blackness for a few minutes, Annabeth finds a button on the wall, and when she presses it, a panel in the ceiling slides back, revealing stars and a ladder. Annabeth and Percy climb out and find that the entire camp has been looking for them. Clarice has already won the contest and asks them where they've been for the past few hours, despite them only being underground for a few minutes. Chiron sends everyone back to their cabins before rumours can start to spread, but Annabeth figures it out. There's a way into the labyrinth in Camp Half-Blood, and Luke can avoid the magical borders if he finds it. So, what did you think of these three chapters? Okay, so these are the first three chapters of the book. We didn't do four this week because there was a lot of shit happening. Yeah. In, the, in like these chapters, this this was kind of jam-packed. Uh, I they were fine. Yeah, I feel like I feel like like the summaries kind of expose one of the problems with these chapters, mm-hmm. which is it was just like like you said, it was just thing after thing happening. It was like action heavy but not a lot going on besides that it's it's wide but not deep is how i would say it i think one of the things that happens when you get into a long-running kids book series is that by like you know book four or so like we're at now you're gonna have a lot to explain to the kids who maybe haven't read it before it's been a couple years they've read it etc etc yeah or even just like you know, maybe a kid's picking this one up for the first time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that having to do so much of that recap really kind of weighed down these chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, just exposition dumps about stuff that we already know because we just read Titan's Curse. Yeah, and to be fair, I think that's completely fine. I also think that the way that it was done was interesting. Like, it was done in a very specific way. Which was, Percy was being whisked from event to event, being told things they didn't really understand. And, like, you know, he was hearing about all sorts of things happening at camp and around him. And the way that the recap was basically handled was that it was done through the lens of Percy trying to contextualize things within his own history and experience. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I think that's interesting, right? Because that provides, like... Because that's probably a, one of the better ways to do that thing. Like, if you want to tell us, oh, N- Nico, you know, we, we abandoned him last summer and, like, it, we tried to find... it's a, If you want to tell us about a plot point, a character, like, f- trying to figure out new things using the, like, former plot points isn't the worst way to do it. But it's... It just makes everything feel kind of service level. Yeah, I wonder if maybe like... Because I've seen this done in a few books that um, kind of get around this problem by including like an optional recap at the start. Really? Yeah, where it's just like five pages with an author's note that says, right, if, you've, if you're like reading these one after the other, just skip this bit. It's just recapping everything that happened in the last book. I feel like I could see some like serious literary scholars being opposed to that or something like that, but I that sounds like it's, it'd be pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I spent a whole, a whole year listening to serious literary scholars talk about things, and I think they can all go fuck themselves. So, I, I feel pretty similarly. I <laughs> I do think that that's an option that 
could have been served. Maybe Rick just didn't think of it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. I mean, most of what I've seen it in is like fairly recent books, so it might just be like something that just wasn't done until recently. For sure. And there is something to be said for like leaving that context to be figured out. But you know, I don't know. I so I think that was part of the problem. Of these chapters, they also just weren't very exciting. Yeah, I mean, for, for all the action, there's like, you know, it's opening in media res action. There's very rarely like a lot of consequences to that stuff. Yeah. There was one thing that really excited me, though. Oh, okay. There were actually a few things that definitely excited me. One of those was our brand new video game character, fun dad, uh, Quintus. Quintus is definitely interesting. I guess I guess that's kind of like the nicest thing you can say about these chapters is like they are surface level and a lot of exposition, but they're setting up interesting threads. And Quintus is definitely one of those. Right, like, this is very much the first three chapters of the book, so it feels kind of like, well, you know, of course they have to just be setting up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, And to that extent, like, I think it succeeds. Like, I am interested in the Labyrinth, I'm interested in Quintus, I'm interested in whatever's going on with Cronus's army. I'm interested in all of that right now. I think that's all, like, been successfully established so far, even if I don't think it was especially exciting reading. Yeah, definitely. I'm also, I'm interested to see where Rachel Elizabeth Dare pops up again. Same, same. Her job seems to be to just appear at the worst possible time. That's a pretty good job to fulfill in a book. True. I want to I see more of her, though. She's a cool character. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, worst possible time for her. Oh, absolutely, yes. So, let's talk about Quintus first. What do you think of Quintus? Quintus is uh, I'm I'm suspicious of Quintus. I am too. I was thinking I was wondering if you would be as well. Do you feel like he might have, you know, sent those scorpions after Percy and Annabeth? I uh, hmm. You know, that hadn't even occurred to me. That wasn't even part of why I was suspicious of him. Really? Well, yeah, I mean my my thing is more just like He's a cool new character, but he's clearly covering up, like, a secret about this mark on his neck. So there's probably something shady going on there. Oh, I'm sure there is. My theory was that he paired up Percy and Annabeth so that they could both get driven at the labyrinth by the monsters that he probably brought in. Because uh-huh. Percy remarked on, like, where did these monsters come from or whatever? Yeah, like, you know, half of the monsters in the forest targeting them directly seems a bit weird. It does. I'm curious if that's if he's going to be what we thought that uh, what's his name from the second book would be Tantalus. Yeah, maybe he'll be the actual like kind of cool villain that Tantalus could have been. God, I literally have not thought about Tantalus since I put that book down. Absolutely same. Oh, wait, hang on. I wonder if Tantalus is the person who Nico is talking to. Oh, shit. That'd be really interesting, actually. I could see Tantalus being that kind of manipulating force. Yeah, definitely. I would really like that if that was the case. I mean, this this speculation is also based on... I glanced at the chapter titles earlier while I was doing the summaries, and I noticed that chapter 5 is Nico buys happy meals for the dead. So maybe th- this is all Tantalus's long con to just get the BTS McDonald's meal. Ah, if I was in... The fields of Asphodel, the fields of punishment. There are too many fields in the other world. <laughs> and they 
I tantalized me is really all you could say with that <laughs> sweet, sweet B- BTS sauce. I would do anything I could. I would manipulate a 10-year-old boy and to, you know, bring back and killing people just to get that, that those sweet McNuggies. Blood sacrifice for the Amogus BTS McNugget. Absolutely. Did uh, the, the, the school stuff, the school stuff. The school stuff, I feel like it was more or less just like a more truncated and probably better version of the opening of Sea of Monsters. It felt very distinct to me, just because of how vividly the Sea of Monsters school was described, and this feels like the most normal high school Percy's been to yet in a lot of ways. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, it's literally called Good High School. Yeah, and so that's really funny, because like it kind of makes you think, like, oh, Percy's finally got a good place. He's got, you know, his mom's nice boyfriend... He's got his mom, you know, he's got going to a new school. He's got his friend, question mark, going there with right. him. But also, we're like immediately set into like Percy anxiety mode because his brain goes into hell as soon as he sees Rachel is it there. I mean, he's completely valid. Like He is. He's, his, his fears are not unfounded. No, you're right. And I do think, like, him, be- his mom saying to him, like, all you have to do is not blow the school up. And then, <laughs> like, it's really, like, a bad situation for him because he also has, like, really bad social anxiety, it seems like, to an extent. Yeah, he does seem to just kind of struggle generally with people. Yeah. Which, damn, me too, the fuck. Yeah. Or maybe it could have just been the the bad vibes that those cheerleaders are giving off. That is also very possible. What what do you think of the uh empousai, em, empousai, whatever? I think it's empu Yeah, it's like empousa or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh I think the empousa are like interesting. I like I I think they're cool monsters. Yeah, the design is certainly very like weird and distinct. I also think it's interesting that servants of Hecate are, like, serving Kronos. Hecate being, like, a god, like, the god of, uh, magic. Wait, oh yeah, wasn't this, like, I think this is another Sea of Monsters thing. Oh yeah, uh, Circe, I think. So, yeah, Circe was also, like, given magic or worshipped Hecate. We've seen a lot, so she seems to definitely be sort of, like, on the Kronos side of things. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, we also haven't seen... She, is she even a, an Olympian? Because she doesn't have a cabin at Camp Half-Blood or anything. No. She's not, like, one of the classical 12 Olympians. Uh-huh. I think she's, like, an underworld... Like, a, like a chthonic one. Right, okay. So, like, primordial. A little... Not primordial. She's not, like... Uh, She's not one of those. I think she's, like... I can't think of, like, the theogony of it but uh don't worry about it my i'm drawing all my mythical knowledge here from hades yeah of course of course but i think that like she's the she's the mother of like circe and the impusa and medea if you ever read that and uh scylla oh yeah the giant two-headed thing yeah exactly I think she's like cousins with Artemis and Apollo. It's a it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. All the Greek gods are related. Also, they're all fucking each other. This is just yeah. this is just how it goes. Yeah, she might be Zeus's daughter. Who knows? Who knows? It's it's always interesting. And then along came Zeus with his lightning bolt. And then along came Zeus. 
you'll get that one day when we watch Hercules, which we're going we to should do watch that this week for the bonus episode. We should. We'll be doing that along with talking about E3, probably. Oh, yeah, we still need to do that. Anyway, this is several weeks out of date for anyone listening. Probably true. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? She's also a, like, Hecate is also commonly like one of the triple goddesses he will talk about when they, talk, when they kind of talk about like, oh, the maiden mother and crone or whatever. Uh, ah, so they're the ones, uh, they, they get the most shitty Tumblr subs in their DMs calling them goddesses. Right, right. Well, she's the crone, so I don't know if... I feel like it would still happen. Probably, yeah. I also... It'd be a total tangent, but, like, oftentimes, like, triple goddess archetype is very misapplied in a lot of ways. Um, it, it... It doesn't. It doesn't. It truly does not matter. Are you calling out Legend of Zelda right now? No, no, not that kind of thing. I'm oh, talking okay. about, like... L- when different goddesses from certain cultures are like applied to aspects of like a thing that's very based in like like a very specific culture of I don't know like there's a lot of there I could do a whole different podcast about paganism oh god I, and like h- historical things but that won't be this podcast is what I'm saying this podcast is kind of pagan already we're in that area I think that's probably true Aphrodite is uh, is the patron goddess of the podcast so. This this podcast is our offering to Aphrodite. No, no, blood sacrifice. Oh, you're right. You're right. Of course. Uh, <laughs> um. So, so I what basically what I think is that it's really interesting that there is now explicitly a god basically on Kronos' side, or in, implicitly, but like it seems very explicit. Yeah, there's like there's not a lot of other ways to read it. Mm-hmm. I'm. How do you feel about how the cheerleaders were introduced? Did you notice the description of them? The description that made specific note of how one of them was black and had hair that looked like Medusa? Yeah, that one. That was a little... uh... Well, because it wasn't like there was a white... It wasn't like one of them was white and had straight hair or something. It was like one of them was blonde and had blue eyes. And the other was African-American with dark curly hair like Medusa's. It's a little bit of, like, J.K. Rowling vibes with the, like, if a character is not white, you know about it. Yeah, and if it, and if a character is white, it's assumed. Yeah. It, it's very much that kind of, like, white as default thing that I think is extremely prevalent, but always annoying. Yeah, a little bit. They're fun characters for while they exist, though. Um, so yeah, I think the school stuff is fun. That whole section is all right. I have a question for you. Okay. How do you think the romance is going to be in this in this in this book? Uh, okay. So we gave a bit of credit last book to like, you know, Percy's jealousy regarding Luke because that was quite complicated, and you can see how that was wrapped up in the other things he felt about Luke and the long history those characters had together. Annabeth being jealous that Rachel Elizabeth Dare exists is bullshit. It's. <sighs> And I know that, like, sometimes that does happen or whatever. It just feels so boring. It's it's shitty and boring when it happens in real life. Don't put it in the damn book. Yeah, I I don't get it. It doesn't feel necessary. Does it feel accurate to her character? I don't know if it does. I really don't think it does. Like, Annabeth, I think, is quite, you know, she's quite a logical character. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say that, oh, it shows just how much she's into Percy that she's ignoring that. 
in order to be jealous, but eh. I just don't like eh. it. I don't like that she's jealous of Rachel Elizabeth Day, or it doesn't feel right or interesting at all. I also don't like that it's treated as, like, just kind of normal. Like, Percy's not just, like, fucking get over it. Yeah, and I don't think he would. Like, it doesn't seem care- very, well, not, like, not, care... Not, you know, words to that effect. Like, it's not weird that he knows another, like, girl who goes to his school. Yeah. And if they were, like, caught in any kind of, like compromising seeming situation this would be still tired but like make more sense actually i wonder mm-hmm. if originally the way this worked was like somehow annabeth walked in on them in the band room together <sighs> maybe well because the way that they meet her is that they like run out of a dark alley together and i guess that's, so that's kind of but like then you know it's immediately like oh the school's on fire yeah, before before she even shows up, Percy is yelling about how he accidentally murdered two cheerleaders, so... If she, like, found them stuffed into a closet together or something, like, pressed up against each other, whoops, accident, then, like, sure, maybe I'd give it, like, a few lines of, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, it doesn't feel authentic, I guess. Yeah, it just feels like a trope that exists because that's how these romances go. And that's kind of what we were worried about from the beginning. Sure is. So let's hope for better stuff. Let's hope. Also, uh, I've just boost- boosted our um, podcast Inherent Paganismness. Uh-huh. Uh, I went rooting through a pile of Yu-Gi-Oh cards next to me and pulled out a copy of Slife of the Sky Dragon. Oh, hell yeah. So now we've got an, an Egyptian god card watching over our podcast for Maximum Pagan. Make sure to save those for the the Kane Chronicles. <laughs> uh, their dynamic was good in the rest of these chapters, though. It was after that. It was pretty much back to just like normal for them, which is more or less just being mates. Right, right, and that's that's always nice to see. Yeah, is Annabeth like loaded? Because uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> there's a part where she just like gives a driver a roll of cash. I mean, her her dad has enough money to like buy world war one era planes yeah and like move across the country to san francisco and live in san francisco and live yeah she really must be rich percy get in there yeah he's it's a it's an odd couple situation for sure i know we i I know we keep going back around to him but the, the introduction to quintus is really good oh definitely and we also get the introduction of uh something that we really enjoyed in Lightning Thief and haven't really gotten since, uh, which is Big Dog. Doggy. Large, we love doggy. very good dog. Quintus has a pet hellhound named Mrs. O'Leary, and when Percy sees her, he's like, oh god, there's a hellhound sleep, just like sleeping in the field. So he tries to kill her, and <laughs> suddenly, like, out of nowhere, his sword is, like, blocked when it's inches away, and then he like instinctively attacks whoever blocks it and Quintus parries it. And it's, it's awesome. It's really cool. I am ready for like, if Quintus turns out to be a villain, I'm ready for him to be a really cool, like ending boss fight for the book. He, he at least deserves like a good one-on-one duel because Absolutely. this sets that up really well. It's, it's notable also that he's the first like old demigod we've met. 
now that the book brings it up, it is kind of weird that we've never seen that before. And I guess we were just kind of supposed to take it as read that most of them died. Yeah, exactly. Grover's not having a good week, I noticed. Grover's having a bad time, which, you know, kind of normal for him now. Yeah, Grover just doesn't seem to have a good time in these books. Hey, at least he's got a girlfriend now. Yeah, that's nice for him. Juniper, she seems like a nice person who's... You know, main character trait so far seems to just be, you know, Grover, but I, it's okay. I'm kind of giving it the side eye, if I'm honest. Yeah. That this this girlfriend character has been introduced with, like, no prior setup, doesn't seem to be especially characterized or important to the story, uh, and does come after we've spent two books insinuating that Percy and Grover might be gay because of the empathy link thing. Did we ever say that? I guess we might have. But... I, I think I cited it in one of our... Um, Percy Jackson characters are not cishet segments. I think that's true. I think you're right. Like, I know there's establishment because, like, we've seen the satyrs chasing around the nymphs and, like, trying yeah. to kiss each other or whatever. And that was, like, fun. But I do kind of wish that she was introduced beforehand. Like, maybe, like, oh, like, a nymph waved to Grover. Like, oh, that's Juniper. I don't know. Like, anything could have... Like, it's nice to have a character introduced before they're a romantic partner. Like, it's not necessary. It's certainly not necessary. Like, not every single character has to have an introduction before they become, like, a, a, char- a different character's, like, romantic partner. But it does kind of make them seem, like, less of a not gay. Yes. Exactly. And it and just kind of more of a character for themselves in general. Like, Juniper, so far, does not feel very three-dimensional. She is sad because Grover is getting fired. Yeah. I, I do like that we were starting the story off with such a heavy emphasis on that stuff, though, because, like I said at the end of last book, if you're going to have it so that the cliffhanger is that Pan is back, then the next book needs to be heavily built around that. And I, I know you were doubting that to an extent. Yeah, I was I was a little bit cagey about it ending on that cliffhanger after the Nico thing, but this book's definitely justifying that. Yeah, speaking of Nico... Poor kid... <laughs> poor kid he's homeless he's it's like his hair is growing long his face he's all pale he's setting fire he's, to his warhammer figurines that's how you know someone's it, gone off the deep end it's it's really sad he's emo now it's sad he's thinking about doing human transmutation to murder percy and get bianca back we we're we we're assuming it's percy but he never actually said percy i mean Going by the end of the last book, where he told Percy that he wished he was dead. We're we're heavily, heavily, <laughs> heavily assuming it was Percy. But I, we need to have a segment one day, or just like an episode where we look through all the different character art, because there's like two different depictions of Nico that are vastly different from like around this time. Uh-huh. I think it'd be interesting to like compare and contrast... So I think one day it'd be fun to just like take a look at all the different art that we have for the characters and compare them and how we how we feel about how they should look. Yeah, that sounds fun. Speaking of comparing art, though. Oh, here we go. Two two rave reviews in last book. <laughs> we compared the covers of all the different editions of the Titan's Curse. Now I would like to take a look at all the different covers of the Battle of the Labyrinth. I'm I'm ready for this because as usual the UK localized cover is dog shit. 
please describe it to us. So what we've got is um, a kid in like an ill-fitting t-shirt shot from the back, uh, holding a poorly photoshopped in shield and sword, kind of facing off against a snake woman with big wings. But it's all kind of like the same color and purple and quite dull. Okay. Yeah, and it's got, like, this weird, like, holofoil effect on it where, like, the characters are matte, but the background is shiny. And I feel like that should be the other way around. I've never seen that one. Let me find it really fast. I'll take a picture and I will send it to you if I can do that faster than you can Google it. Uh, I've seen, I'm seeing it. This is the UK edition. Half boy, half god, all hero. Yep. This does not look good. It really doesn't. Although I'm looking at the one that uh, you've sent me. Is this the um, American version? This is the re-edition. This is the reprint. Okay, that's also not good. This is worse. It's basically the same kind of setting. It's Percy. Uh, it's a boy in an orange shirt, dark hair, kind of messy, holding a sword back um, and a shield shot from the back, uh, looking not at anything specific, just kind of at like a fire. He is like surrounded by a ball of fire. I think he's looking at the... Um the now a major film sticker i think so i think so in horror um let's but let's take a look at the one that uh comes from the the new cover like the the one that comes with the set is this the the really nice one where like all the spines make a picture that's right that's right oh this is very good i adore this so what we've got here is the labyrinth depicted as like a city that the kids are running on top and they are framed very very small so like you can miss them if you don't see them immediately it it took me like a couple of seconds to even pick them out and but the thing that immediately catches your eye is the giant titan um i would have to assume it's a titan the giant flaming man a man of molten lava wearing like a horrific like mask that is filled with flame I think that's just like a, a helmet. Yes, a helmet is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Kind of like vaguely skull shaped uh, inside of it, like the flame is. Oh, yeah. Reaching a hand out for them. That's a very good cover. Yeah, he looks like he's about to smack them and flatten them. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Wait, hey, why, why the fuck is this the only cover with the labyrinth on it for the book, The Battle of the Labyrinth? Good question. Well, let's look at the one that I had when I was a kid. Okay. I mean, the ones that you had when you were a kid have mostly been solid so far, right? They've been pretty solid. Yeah, I like I like the look of them a lot. Let's look at this one. Oh, that's pretty good. I like that. Uh, so it's kind of uh, an altar with this kind of glowing liquid smoking off the top and pouring off the sides. With like a character shot from the back holding a sword and looking down over it. And then behind them we have... Lo- what looks almost like a scale model of the labyrinth on the floor and it's kind of it's all red and moody and it just looks really good yeah i like this one a lot and there's there is a kind what kind of uh suggests like the golden gate bridge vaguely yeah you can see yeah you can see the uh mount tam and then on the far side there's the empire state building right Okay, we should talk. Uh, the, I don't know which. Uh, maybe this one or the like the edition, the new edition one is probably my favorite. I'm not sure which. I think, pro. I I like the big molten man. Same, but let's let's talk about the labyrinth because it is the most intriguing thing in these chapters to me. Hell yeah! Let's let's get it. Let's get into this. What what did you find so interesting about it? 
I thought it was just like the way that it was depicted here was like a second skin under the United States and beyond. Yeah, it feels like a much more literal underworld than the actual underworld. Yeah, like the underworld is like a big cave that is very underground and far, far, far. But it's like above that and like growing, like constantly growing. Yeah, the growing thing is like that I feel like um, really sets up how dangerous it is. Because right away you get the implication that it's kind of shifting and almost has like a mind of its own. Especially because the first thing, we see the labyrinth a little bit. We see, because Annabeth and Percy fall into it. Yeah. And they almost get lost immediately without doing anything. Yeah, it's like, it's pitch dark, there is no way to navigate, and Annabeth is immediately terrified. I I really like it. Annabeth being, like, into it because of the architecture is fun. It's always nice to be reminded that, you know, she's got those architecture aspirations. And I think it's a clever, like, you know, setting for what is presumably going to be the adventure because of that yeah i am a little i'm a little worried i guess about the idea that the entire book will be set in the labyrinth uh-huh there'll probably be a lot more variety in there than it seems like at face value but just on its face like a lot of the fun of these books is like exploring real world locations and seeing how those kind of cross over with the mythology and yeah I, I feel like it might lose something a little if it's just them in the tunnels for a book. It's the type of series that makes you want to like map out where all the characters went and like go on a road trip through it. Yeah. And because of that, like you're right. I do think it's like, if it's all just in the labyrinth, they need to make it really interesting. And I mean, they need to make a series of like diverse locations within the labyrinth, Mm -hmm. which I, I hope that's how they do it for sure. I mean, there is, there is also option B, which is just, they have to pop out at various points to do stuff. But then I guess like the labyrinth isn't really the main thing. It's just how you get to the next location. Yeah, I don't think that'd be as good for like the threat of the labyrinth. Yeah. I feel like it would reduce its impact if you could just pop out. Yeah, just make it like a bus. Yeah. Well, I guess if they did like the doors from Monsters, Inc. True, yeah. Um, I still have enough faith. Yeah, like like I said at the end of the last book, my faith is restored. I'm I'm willing I'm willing to put a bit of trust in Rick on this one. These were like the these weren't these were not rough chapters. I would not describe them as rough. Oh, they definitely were decent not. and kind of boring. But sometimes a, some decent boring chapters is what you want. I mean, there's there's also the other thing to remember, which is we're doing a few of these a week for a podcast. I imagine if you were a kid and you were reading this, you would just blast through those chapters, not even think about any of them, and you'd be straight into the meat of the story. Very true. Very true. Uh, the cover of um, Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth in the UK edition informs me that the Greek gods are alive and kicking if I go to percyjackson.co.uk to see for myself. Uh, this website leads to a 404 dead link. So clearly the gods are no longer alive and kicking. So that's a shame. That's so sad. We got spoiled for the end of the series. <laughs> where Kronos wins. Uh, so the British no longer believe in the gods. And for that, they are doomed. Hey, to be fair, our website just got shut down. The AmericanPercyJackson.com got turned into a weird fucking gambling shell company. So hey, if it ain't broke... <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Is that even still up? I need to check now. 
because that website fascinates me. I look at it like every week. It's important. Oh, let's get let's get to some just like you know flash flash by lightning rounds. Okay, Jane, you told me that before the show started that there was some kind of sick, really interesting, really like poignant reference that was made in these chapters that you thought revealed a lot about like authorial intent and um, just maybe like some context for what's going to be happening in these books. Uh, I did. So here is. Here is where I think we get into some like deep metaverse level stuff, uh, because I think this is the f- the first hints we get of the crossover with the Aragon books, and also Doctor Who. What? Uh, because if we go to chapter one, and uh, uh-huh. see, where is it? Listeners, I have no idea what the fuck Jane is talking <laughs> about. <laughs> where the fuck? Ah, yes, here we go. Soon, your pretty little camp in flames, your friends made slaves to the Lord of Time. Now, the species of the Doctor in the hit television series Doctor Who is Time Lord. Uh-huh. Uh, and in the, the Aragon books by Christopher Paolini, it's been confirmed that the Doctor is in fact canon in those. This is information okay. that I wish I didn't know, but I do. It's stuck in my head forever. Of course, uh, the, so, the soon-to-be-remade Aragon series. Of course. Hashtag remake Aragon. Well, what's clear to me here is that we're clearly getting, like, an evil Doctor arc where uh, he comes in, takes over Camp Half-Blood, and then the funny dragon boy comes and saves them all. And, and listeners, <laughs> Jane, you may say, Jane, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> This is clearly referring to the fact that Kronos is a god of time. I actually did not know about this. And it's very obvious because his name is Kronos. Oh. It's spelled with a K, not with a C-H. But if you said that to Jane, she would look at you and say, (laughs) you are simply a fool and you do not understand. Okay, so I was referring to the message you sent me where you were like, haha, Rick made a funny Battlestar Galactica reference. And... Oh, this was... I. Oh, okay, this actually is something that I thought was a real reference to a thing. Okay. But I, I think it's more of just, like, a cute little nod as opposed to, like, full-on reference, which is just that Okay. The, the first kid we meet from Apollo Cabin is called Lee, and one of the main characters in Battlestar Galactica is Lee Adama, whose call sign is Apollo, because of how closely he resembles that god. That's That's literally it. That's all I had. I have no idea... I don't know when that show is coming out. It's very possible. Uh, 2003. So, it, yeah, it's extremely like... I mean, I would argue possibly likely that um, Rick watched Battlestar Galactica because a lot of the mythology of that show is drawn from, like, ancient Greek stuff. Okay. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Did you Did you have any insane no. tangents to go on or... No. You're the one who's not normal today. <laughs> I'm normal. Uh, Tyson's back. That makes me smile. He's cool. I yeah. Tyson. Tyson is being treated better this book, and I'm here for it. Silena's flirting with Percy. That's interesting. That's see. That's where Annabeth should be jealous. That's a legitimate yeah. reason. That that's true. Uh, she wasn't there though. Uh, the Dracon are nothing, but I guess they're you know they represent the impending threats. Yeah, I I only mentioned it because I figured like it might end up being important later if it like tries to like invade the camp. 
it's it's like mood setting or whatever yeah uh uh annabeth and clarice are kind of friends now i like that definitely i mean i feel like i feel like percy's attitude towards clarice is kind of unjustified for sure where he's like oh she usually says hello by trying to get like you you had an adventure together and had like a whole arc about learning to work together for the greater good so like don't give me that shit now and to be fair, she was still a jerk the whole time then. Yeah, and they haven't seen each other for a while, but... Be cool, friendly rivals now. Yeah, I would like that. Hopefully they will be. I hope so. Uh, anything else to cover, or should we head into our final segment? Let's do our segment. Let's do our segment, which Percy Jackson character is not cishet. Okay, yeah, I think uh, this week I want to call out... Um, what's this kid's name? Um, Chris Rodriguez? Uh-huh. Chris Rodriguez is the kid who betrayed the camp to go join Kronos and Luke um, and ended up apparently in the labyrinth. And, and then got stuck in a hole then, in the ground and went crazy. Yeah. I think that Chris had a crush on Luke. I think that they're... <laughs> I think that that's what you would have... Everybody in camp had a crush on Luke. It's very clear. I That genuinely is the vibe we get from book one. So I'm I'm not going to push back on this. Especially because we know that, like, t- at least, like, probably, like, ten campers have left to join Luke's side. Yeah, you'd assume so if you, like, divided equally. Like, ones who died, ones who didn't come back, and ones who defected evenly. Who would you give it to? Uh, my picks for this week are Kelly and Tammy. Vampires are not heterosexual ever, even once. Especially if they have goat legs. I think you'll find it's a donkey leg. Especially if they have donkey <laughs> legs. I know what I'm talking about. It's not much later than we usually do this. I'm My brain is completely clear. If there's any consolation, my brain is very foggy because it's 2am. So understandable. Jane, you gotta go to bed. I am and gonna we go gotta to stop bed. this podcast. We have, we have to destroy it. Stop it in its tracks. We have to. I'm, 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 I'm screaming. I'm yelling to the clouds. My hair is turning golden. And I'm going to use my final attack. I call it outro. So I think that'll do it for us today. If you like the show, you can contact us at unwisegirlspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at unwisegirls. We also have a link to our official Discord server. Uh, If you like us, you can support us by downloading our episodes, telling a friend, leaving a nice rating and review, or checking out our Patreon. For a dollar a month, you get a special role on our Discord marking you as a camp counselor. For $3, you get an even specialer role, marking you as a friend of Dionysus. And you also get access to our bonus content. This week, we, uh, watched Hercules? Probably a little bit more Homestuck, possibly, and... Hercules stuck. A little bit. <laughs> and maybe we'll talk about, uh, the Nintendo Wii 3 stuff. Yeah, because many, many of the happy games were released that made dopamine happen in my brain. Yes. And if you're feeling especially generous, if when you hear our voices, you feel dopamine in your brain, uh, you can get the special stroll of Aphrodite's Chosen for only $5 at Patreon, patreon.com slash unwisegirls, all of our bonus content as well, and a shout out at the end of episodes. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank uh, Mercy, Veronica Friend, and Erica Jane, please come up with a funny nickname for me, Faye. Uh, Jane, do it. Uh, fuck. Um, your name is now percyjackson.co.uk. 
I guess that's funny if you from a like cosmic perspective because none of this matters. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I I'm almost tempted to go digging for it in like an internet archive or something just to see what was on there. I'd imagine nothing of any kind of value, but still. Yeah, probably. And if you're curious what it feels like to not hear our voices anymore, I will say this. Jane, as we say every week, at the end of every single episode... Uh, You will have to pay every penny you have for our silence. You will have to pay every (laughs) penny you have for our silence. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye. Bye.